Hey, it's great to see you. If you've not been with us since October, or maybe if you've never been here before, welcome. We're thrilled that you're here. Uh, we, we had this privilege of celebrating our 10th anniversary on October 6th, and so we use that, uh, that event to start this series where we're trying to ask some raw but honest and we think important questions about, ultimately, what, what do you do when you realize that you no longer believe what you're supposed to believe? And you know, as, as we've explored since then, just, just to be clear, there, there's, for me personally, there, there's, I'm not questioning the Holy Trinity, uh, the divinity of Jesus, his life, death, resurrection, uh, the authority of Scripture, and, and, and what the church fathers and mothers for 2,000 years have handed us. Uh, that, that's not what I mean, but really what we're trying to do is cue up a conversation that says, like, how do you know when, when your new ideas and beliefs like, how do you, how, what do you do when, when things change, and how do you know when that's a good thing? And how do you know when that's a bad thing? And how do you know when there's just permission to say it's a thing thing, because, like, stuff sags over time kind of stuff, if you know what I mean. And just trying to ask these questions, because n- nobody's suggesting, I'm certainly not, that all forms of evolution, as it were, or all forms of change lead us to a better place. Like, we open uh, this narrative, this story of these people and this God, and we certainly don't have to work all that hard to find examples of people whose experience of God has changed over time, and it's, it's become toxic. And the rever- but the reverse is also true. That, that if we're, I, I'm going to argue, if we deal honestly with Moses' story, or Esther's story, or Miriam's story, or Peter's story, or Paul's story, especially in the New Testament, what we see are these, these people who, who the image of God they carried around with them at the end of their life was fundamentally, and I use that word intentionally, fundamentally different than the one that they carried at the beginning. And to me, part of what's driving this is this concern that that if we're not careful, with the best of intentions, what we do is over an undisclosed portion of our life, we, we, we're really, really working on the image of God that we carry. And I think Mike and Kelsey are an awesome example of, uh, of people who look back on their growing up experience of faith. And that's what I told them is so refreshing about that video for me. Is it's refreshing to hear somebody whose growing up experience was, was positive. And maybe that was you, like you, you just had this remarkable experience growing up, or maybe you had this remarkable experience in middle school or at a high school youth group or in college, or at some point in your 20s, you really connected with this church or this community of people, or later in life, you went through a divorce or something tragic, and you've really connected with God. But to me, the, 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 what drives this series is just recognizing that part of the faith experience involves that there's this season of time, and it feels like it's often like four or five years, where we're just working hard on the image of God that we carry. But if we're not careful, and I guess my bias here is if we don't name it, then then the unspoken truth is that what it means to be faithful to Jesus for the rest of your life is to cling to that image and not waver in any way. And if you can do that over the duration of your life, then then you've been faithful. And if you haven't, then you've, and we use all these unfortunate words that are packed with meaning and yet are super confusing, but you've, you've, you've become something that's not authentic anymore. And again, I'm not suggesting that there isn't a way to lose sight of, of a healthy image of God, but, but rather to just name that, that part of what we have to manage in life is, is an evolving understanding of God. And when do we cling to what the apostles told us 2,000 years ago? And when do we go, wait a minute, we're working with information that they didn't have. And how do we honor God in our own faith story? I mean, another way to ask this is, like 10 years later, What's, what matters? Because I think that what that points out is that, 
10 years later, there are hills you would have died on 10 years ago that you won't anymore. And there's hills that you would die on today. And I hate to trivialize the importance of that statement, but there's these things that are fundamentally important to you today that weren't 10 years ago. And what if we acknowledge that, that that's a thing? And it's, it's something we have to steward with God's people and his spirit. We've got to lean into the tension and the responsibility of that. Maybe you don't need 10 years. Maybe for you it's tied to an event. You know, someone died. And suddenly your image of God started to change. 10 years later, what, what happens? Or, or since your divorce, what matters? Since you survived cancer, what matters? Since someone you love didn't survive cancer, what matters? Since you had kids, like, remember how parenting, how easy parenting was before you were one? It's like, it's so easy to go, like, oh, those parents, I, as a youth pastor, I was the most judgmental, like, what are all these parents thinking? And now there's just like, oh, God, this is so difficult. Now you have three kids, and suddenly it's like, man, one was easy. Or, or, or now, now you don't have kids in the home, and suddenly you're, like, refiguring some stuff out because suddenly you forgot that there was a whole season of your life where you weren't a parent with kids at home, but now you are, and you're figuring that out, or now you're divorced, or now, or now you work this different job, or maybe you're listening to this and you're living in this different space. And I guess all of that to say, like, what if, what if God, his becoming human means that he also relates to us in that? That part of what it means to be a human on the planet is that over time our circumstances change and therefore our image of God is going to, to be rocked for better and for worse. And so thus far what we've covered is, because part of what I'm hoping you'll do is open up Evernote or open up your moleskin or open it up wherever it is that go for a walk and just start going like, how has 10 years later, what matters to me about my faith? And start naming these and and. And to kind of prime that pump, so to speak, what we're doing now is going, well, here, here's some of them for me that I've worked through heading into this whole experience. And my experience is different. I've worked for a church for 20 years. My experience is going to be different than yours. But we've talked about, first of all, is that faith does evolve. And then I think embedded in that was this conversation about what is the Bible and how does it work? And then last week we asked this question of, well, what, what is the gospel? And what if the gospel's Jesus? I had this really neat experience this week where I got to speak with Father Mark and his staff to the Carroll students, and it was, I, I, it was actually a giant flop on my part because I took that, like, what is the gospel? What if the gospel's a person thing to them? And they were all like, well, what else would it be? Like, just to see as even that Catholic experience of, of God was in many ways way different in a, in, in a good challenging balance to the conversation. So here's what I want to do this morning is... Because one of the things on my list, and there's, there's 11 of them, is that what matters is, is character. And I guess I want to ask this question, what, what if one of the ways that we can, uh, one of the things we can really cling to about Jesus is that he's a big fan of character, especially growing character. Now, one of the ways we could ask this question, of, think of the things that like, you've been a fan of in the past, but you're no longer a fan of. Uh, maybe you lived in the 80s. Maybe you were married in the 80s. Like maybe you had bangs in the 80s. Right? Like so, so think of how your experience of fashion, or maybe, like I, I can remember my senior year, all the cool kids wore wide corduroys to school. And the wider the bottoms of the legs, the better. And now it's like, you, you all would find a new church if I was wearing. So our experience of fashion changes, right? In fact, just, just kind of cue this up. So here I, brought, I, I loaded in a, a, my senior picture. So what I'm trying to do now is match from my chin what used to be on top of my head. So can make that go away, please. Thank you. Yeah, don't do that thing again. <laughs> oh, 
Or, or think of uh, food. Have you ever thought about how your palate has changed? Like what you would and wouldn't eat? I, I, I was thinking about this this week, and I remember one of the first meals I remember sitting down to as a young married couple. I was 21, my wife was 20, and she, she made spaghetti, and there was noodles, and there was sauce, and I remember putting said sauce on the noodles and then going, wait a minute, this isn't spaghetti. And she's like, what do you mean? There's noodles, there's sauce. And I was like, but where's the beef? Right? Like, like, there's no meat in this sauce. And she's like, I know, but there's zucchini. And I remember going like, no, that, that by definition isn't spaghetti. And yet today, quite honestly, like, the reverse would be true for me. Like, if I sat down and, and you know, because... I'm not, she's not the only one that cooks. I'm not a complete chauvinist. I've grown that way too. Um, but if there, was, if, if there was meat in the sauce, I'm like, I'm going with butter and Parmesan. And then if there was sauce with zucchini, I'm probably going to eat it. So things change. But here's my question. What if one of the ways that we can make sense about God, and what if one of the ways Jesus makes, made sense of God for us is that one of the stakes in the ground is that this God cares deeply about who we are and who we're becoming? What if, what if this God knows that what we get from this life is who we become, and what God gets from our life is who we become. And I'll tell you one of the areas where this has helped me tremendously. Uh, Because what I didn't know before I got here was the number of people who may or may not believe what I do, but who are remarkable people. That gets confusing. Uh, I think I was moving from the box, like there was a season in my 20s, maybe you can relate, where if you believe what I believe, you're good, and if you don't believe what I believe, you're bad. And then I got here, and that was kind of in, in, in movement already. Uh, but then there were these things. It's like the first one for me was this guy named Brad Langsather. Maybe you know him. He's the city open lands manager. And I met him 10 years ago because then city Marks, parks manager Amy Teagarden introduced me because we queued up this question from before we even got here of how can we matter for the common good, like that, that people would be bummed if we ceased to exist. And what quickly emerged was we got acreage full of pine beetle kill. And Brad had been hired to clear the pine beetle kill and to put that up, and, and his job was just to get rid of it, but he had this idea of distributing it for firewood for low-income families. And because of that, over the last 10 years, I and many of you have worked alongside Brad, not just on those pro- that project, but others, and Brad messes with me. Because we've never talked about God, so I'm not trying to even necessarily imply anything, but what I've experienced is he, he, he has this astounding character to the sense where I'm like, I believe in your character more than my own, and I think I do believe the right stuff, and I don't even know what you, but what do you do with that? I, I experienced this, quite honestly, in, in Buzz's memorial last year. Some of you will remember that. And, and, and you know, th- there, there are certain memorials that you do where you can tell what we're doing is drumming up good things to say about a person, and then there's others where it's just gushing, and, I, and, and I, I knew Buzz a little bit, and he was a part of this place a little bit. But I, I, was, I was blown away by the realization of, I, I ultimately never had a conversation about Jesus with this man, but, but frankly, what I experienced was a person who person after person after person testified that he was an astounding person. And I think one of the real dislodging things about faith, because remember, some people are leaving the faith because they're not doing the work. Some are leaving it because they've read the Bible and the answers to the questions that emerged were unsatisfying. And I think one of those is, what do you do with those people who have remarkable character, but maybe don't, or maybe do, Believe what we believe. See, part of what's driving this series for me is the realization that there's probably people who aren't in this room because they don't believe precisely what we believe they used to, 
on these non-consequential things, but they think they're the only one, and so they, they're out. And for me, what's driving this series is that I, I want our students, I want Margaret to know when she sits in a biology classroom at 19 years old, that when some highly educated, very intelligent person starts unpacking things about science that maybe disrupt the way she's thought about her faith, I at least want Margaret and my kids and yours to know that, wait a minute, I don't even necessarily have answers to the questions that you're posing, but what I do know is that my faith is not comprised of a stack of cards where if you remove this one thing, the whole thing goes tumbling down. I know the people who would know the people to help me walk through this question too. And here's my best attempt at an answer. What if, what if Jesus is a raving fan of character? And one of the places where we see this, you hear me reference Dallas Willard's book all the time. This is, here, here's my, like, here's why I think that's the second most important next to the Bible you could ever read. And I'm going to try in 10 minutes to do justice to what, what Dallas Willard says, says in 400 pages. And it starts in Matthew 5.20. So what we're picking up on is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And watch this. For I tell you, now this is kind of Jesus, like he's, like the ship is pushing off. Here, here's kind of where he starts his big sermon. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now remember, heaven isn't cherubs in heaven. heaven kingdom of heaven is character. It's God's character in space now and forever. So really what he's doing is he's going, there's some people who were teaching how to have good character, and it stinks. It's rotten. And what he's suggesting is that his version is superior. So it's brazen, it's audacious, but then what he launches into is really a comparison and contrast of, of what they say, like here's how this guy says you should hit a fastball, and here's how I say you should hit a fastball. Here's how this guy says you should strum a chord, here's how I say you should strum a chord. And watch this, and I just, uh, see if you can see the contrast here. You've heard that it was said, to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. So he's queuing up here. Here's what they say is the end game of character. Don't murder. Jesus says, but I tell you that anyone who's angry with brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, is answerable to the court. And you're like, well, I guess I'm not guilty of that because I don't even know what it means. And anyone who says you fool will be in the dangers of the fire of hell. So he's contrasting. And, and, and We'll get to that, but I just want you to, to read a few and begin to watch the way he's contrasting them, me, them, me. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. What are they emphasizing? But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What is Jesus emphasizing? Now, I mean, maybe just kind of cheat a little bit. My, my bias, and I take this from Dallas Willard, is that what he's emphasizing is really as simple as this, externals versus internals. That what he's saying is religion gone bad is really, really good at making people look like the right kind of person. And the kingdom of God transformation that me and my spirit and the gospel that I'm unleashing myself in the lives of people is going to be this that you'll be transformed from the inside out. So Dallas Willard simply says it this way, that, that, that the, the, the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, if you will, is about behavior modification. And the righteousness of Christ is about character or heart transformation. It's why he, he loves references like, you're all like a bunch of whitewashed tombs. What's he getting at there? The problems aren't solved on the inside, but on the outside it looks okay. 
What if Jesus is a raving fan of character? Now, and you pick up on a little bit more here. Here we go. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So he's pushing. It's not about that. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, you've received their reward in full. What's he saying? They've learned to modify their behavior. They can pray. And when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, because they disfigure their faces to show others they're fasting. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. Now, you can go back through and read this, but but there's a way that he ends it that I think is worth pointing to. So what I want to do is read the way he ends it, because if you've ever heard anything from Jesus' mouth, you've probably heard this, and then give a little historical context to it, and then we'll pray and be done, because I'm like a Pharisee. I can pray well. Just kidding. Uh, (laughs) Kind of. Okay, so here we go. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Now, the original audience, I want to suggest, upon hearing this, would have heard of something that they would have known called a wadi washout, or at least that's what modern uh, Israelites would call it today, or modern people living in Palestine. It's a wadi washout. Now, what what is a wadi washout? Let me go left brain here for a second and talk a little geography. What you have here is a map of, obviously, Israel. Working left to right, you've got the Mediterranean Sea, and then you've got the coastal plain. That's the lush, like that's Portland, Seattle, that's everything's beautiful and green, and quite frankly, that's the area that the Jews rarely held because that was the coveted part of the land that everybody else fought for, and they were generally not strong enough to hold it. The yellow area is what you call the Shephelah. Now, that just means foothills, not unlike where we live, because what you're headed to as you go east is a really rugged mountain range. Jerusalem sits right in the middle of that mountain range, and then part of the weird thing about Jerusalem is it really was a really impractical, like unnecessary place. It's unique in the sense that it was really, uh, it's, just, it's just a really impractical capital, and that's part of how Israel held it for as long as they did. But from, from Jerusalem to the Dead Sea uh, is about 20, 21 miles, and the Dead Sea is the lowest place on earth. I think the highest mountains in Israel are right around 3,000 feet. So what you've got is this massive drop-off, and of course, if you paid attention in, when they explained why the rain happens, then what you know is what you've got is a very dry desert region east of those mountains. That's where these wadis form, I, as I understand it, from limestone. But here we go. Here's a wadi. Now, these are all over the place as you go up and down the eastern slopes of the mountains in Israel. But here's what happens is you're standing in them. They're beautiful places to hike. It's often where you find shade. You're standing in them, and much like Echo Canyon, perhaps, you have no way of seeing what's happening 15 miles away, 20 miles away in the mountains, because what's happening there is this massive rainstorm is hitting. And because of the composition of their soils, and I don't claim to understand them, that water doesn't just soak into the ground. It builds up a head of steam and before you realize it, you're caught in what we would call a flash flood. Here's a one-minute video of something like that, or, or one of these.
I hope it was obvious that what you weren't looking at was anything time elapsed. In fact, last time I was in Israel, Tim reminded me, uh, we were going along the highway along the Dead Sea, and there had been a washout, and our guide was like, someone died in that. It just happened just recently. It happens every year. But here's the question. Where's the sand? Remember, Jesus says, if you build your life on the sand, you're in trouble. Where's the sand? And where's the rock? And therefore, what if what he's saying, and this is what I believe, this is what Dallas Willard believes, that what he's saying is if you, if you tie your character back to the character Christ builds in you, you'll have the kind of character that can withstand any of life's storms. Why? Because what will have happened in you is you've been transformed in the right, into the kingdom kind of person. You've not just modified behavior to look the part. What if... What if Jesus is quite simply a raving fan of character and he has the audacity to believe that he's the best at creating it in us? But what if that also means that when we see astounding character in others, what if God's not threatened by that? What if if it's okay to applaud a remarkable person and a great life lived, a person of incredible character, even though we can't personally put the puzzle together of how did you get there with or without God, we don't have to claim to know those answers. Because what we know is that God's grace is perfectly capable of shining on people whether they acknowledge him or not. What if God is at the end of the day a raving fan of character and therefore so should we be? And we know, we know of Christ. We know of the invitation. So, so we go all in on him, believing that he's like, he's the black belt. He's the best. He's the one through his cross that can transform us inside out. And yet, we're raving fans of character wherever we have the chance to celebrate it. What if of those who know Christ, we ought to be begging God God, transform me from the inside. Transform me from the inside because we know as well as anybody environments like this and friendships like those we carry, they're as prone to making us fake it till we make it as anything. And so we beg God. And in those moments when our head hits the pillow and we're quickly reminded of all the ways we failed as a parent or a spouse or a leader or a friend that day, we don't, we don't go the way of shame. We leverage that voice to go the way of prayer. God, please, form me into the person who's whole from the inside out. You know, I think one of the dangers of talking about character is as soon as you do, it's an ironic death-by-self-talk catalyst, isn't it? Because there's this thing, because if you walk out the door going like, yeah, I have great, I'm there, I got great character, well, then we're all like, eh, you worry me. <laughs> and yet at the same time, there's, there's no better way to, you know, shame a person than talk about what a good parent is, and suddenly you're like, eh, not me. You know, it reminds me, John Townsend, years ago, and we'll, we'll wrap up just on this thought. John Townsend, years ago, I was at a conference. He's this great uh, Christian psychologist, I believe. And on Thursday, day four of this conference, I, I was like, man, I, I'm so discouraged. And he's like, why are you discouraged? It was this rather small thing. And I said, because the biggest thing I'm taking from this is no matter what I do as a parent, my kids are going to be screwed up and need therapy when I'm done. <laughs> and he said, Adam... The research doesn't say that our kids need perfect parents. The research would say our kids need parents who acknowledge fault when that's what's happened, who circle back and acknowledge their imperfections when that's what occurred. And it strikes me, what if here we have this kind of paradoxical thing? Because when it comes to perfect character, of course that's God's ideal. When it comes to God, there's the ideal and there's the real. 
And Jesus' conversation about character always is about calling us to this inward transformation, but remember, central to the inward transformation is the ability to acknowledge fault. Watch this in Matthew 6 when Jesus talks about prayer. With this, um, one of my all-time favorite places in all of the text, the more I understand it. Our Father in heaven, God, you're right here. Hallowed be your name. God, remind me that life is about you, not about me. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is not a prayer about where I go when I die. It's a prayer about character. God, I want my space to be infused with your space. Give us today our daily bread. Why? Because we're contingent beings and we can't provide for our own needs. And then look where he goes. This is his like ideal worldview prayer and look what he has in there. And forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors. What if built into Jesus' character ideal is this acknowledgement that there's what's ideal and then there's what's real and what's important is that part of your character involves acknowledging imperfection. What if God invites us into deeper character and simultaneously invites us to applaud whatever character we see in others, not always having to explain all the nuances? I like to pray, God. Thanks, God, that you... I mean, on the one hand, it's incredibly ironic that if your priority is character, that your story is full of suspicious and kind of weird characters, Uh, that those very people that we put on pedestals and celebrate, the Moseses and the Abrahams, that their stories are, are fraught with contradiction and difficulty and imperfection, and yet what we see in your story is a common thread of grace, a story of of people who know what they know and they know what they don't know. And God, we, we recognize that then you gave us this gift of the cross of a life lived, a a death endured, a resurrection won. And and God, thanks that you give us community and space like this to be transformed, but you don't need us to play any games. God, would you make us uh, famous for the way that we celebrate character wherever we see it and then lead us more and more into this place where we just were all in on the fact that you're the one that's going to give it to us. Amen. If you would like to engage further with Narrate Church, you can find contact information online, www.narratechurch.org. We would love to hear from you.